into Exodus 2 in a minute, um, but before we do that, um, this is our second week progressing through the story of the first part of Exodus. Um, before we do that, I wanted to bring up this um, this idea that I've been wrestling with this week. Um, I think that many of us have, um, I couldn't think of a good term for it, but many of us have kind of like a life theme or something that we go back to frequently. Um, and uh, I'll give you an example. Um, There's a person I knew at one point who you could meet him, and within five minutes or so, you would learn that he had a PhD. <laughs> um, like, it's just a, it, it was something that was his kind of life theme would, would get brought into conversation. He would just find a way to bring it up, and it was something that he would kind of point back to, right? Um, this can also be, you know, the person who maybe peaked when they were the quarterback in their high school football team, you know, like stuff like that, right? Uh, this is the, the things that you, when you meet a person, they almost like, they, they can't help but kind of point back to this thing. It's like you meet them and you get pointed back to this thing that they're really maybe proud of or really shine shine in. Um, but what I want to say about that, I'm using kind of somewhat silly examples, but what I want to say about that is that I think a lot of us have these, these things we point to because, and this is where it's going to connect with what I want to talk about from Exodus 2, we go to these things frequently because they are the product of or the fruit of or the result of an, in, an important, formative, difficult, challenging time in one's life. So, the person I mentioned a moment ago, who's really proud of his PhD, I knew, having known him, I knew that his background, there were, there were a lot of things in his background that pointed to the fact that he probably wouldn't be likely to get that. He has a large family background, he has a large economic background, right? And so you can kind of know the fuller picture of that's kind of why this person was so proud of this achievement that they had. Um, and, you know, go down the line of all these other examples, or maybe ones that you're thinking of. Maybe ones you're thinking of in your own life, or other friends that you've had that have similar life themes that they've pointed to. But the thing that I really want to, am trying to draw out here is that our life points to something else. The way we live, the way we interact, um, the way we find meaning, what we find meaning in, what we find purpose in, it's going to naturally point to something else. And my main kind of overarching argument or idea this morning is that that's part of what God does through the Exodus. It draws people out, draws people through a formative experience, a challenging, a crucible, a formative experience that then the result of that pulling out and pulling through that experience is that then they point back to God on the other side of it. That's a big idea of the Exodus, and that's what we're going to look at today. And so what we're going to look at today in chapter 2 is a story that covers Moses' birth, his very quickly covers his very early life, and it sets the stage for this for Moses to emerge as God's chosen leader to lead this dramatic rescue operation of God's people of Israel. Um, and so there's a lot that can there's a lot that could be unpacked from this chapter, but I'm gonna keep trying to come back to this theme uh, about God's rescue involving drawing drawing people through, drawing people out. Right? God draws Moses out and God draws people out, and a result of that drawing out is that then those people point to God as a result of what God pulled them through, as a result of what God kind of worked out. Um, they naturally point to God. So that's kind of my main idea, really, and I'm, I'm just going to unpack it. We're going to spend some time unpacking it as we survey the chapter. And so what I want to do is um, step through. You can, If you have it, you can pull up Exodus 2. I'm not going to read the whole thing for the sake of time, um, but I am going to highlight sections of it. Uh, and I'm going to comment, specifically work through it in kind of three big sections of the chapter. We're going to talk about Moses' birth. 
We're going to talk about Moses fleeing from Egypt and then some a bit about Moses' time in Midian. Um, so, first is Moses' birth. This is an extremely famous scene, and the verses I have up on the screen here are verses 2 and 3. It simply says she, being Moses' mother, um, interesting reading this on Mother's Day, um, but she hid him for three months. Then she got a papyrus basket, coated it with pitch. She placed the child in the basket and set it among the reeds by the bank of the Nile. I would strongly encourage you to read this whole chapter maybe later today while this is all fresh in your mind, so we're not going to read the whole thing today. But what I want to point out here, this is a really famous scene. Like, how many of us have seen, like, Prince of Egypt or movie, you know, movie renditions of this, you know, Prince of Egypt makes that quite a bit more dramatic than, uh, <laughs> here, here are the images. She kind of tucked it in some weeds, right? Prince of Egypt has him, like, floating by boats and crocodiles and stuff. Anyways. Side note, not that important. Um, this is a very famous scene, though. It's been uh, depicted in many ways. And I think it's familiarity or some of the dr dramatizations of it can actually cause us to miss some of the really important details in the text. And I want to point out some of these details because, um, because they have really fascinating themes and connections to the rest of the biblical literature, but also because I really believe the biblical literature is beautiful and brilliant. And I think that that gets missed in a lot of our conversations about scripture today. So, um, so a few things. First of all, remember, if you were here last week, remember our discussion. This comes right on the heels of what we looked at last week, which was, which was what? Actually, let's get some audience participation here. What did we talk about last week? What was going on right before this? Exodus 1. Who was here? Some of you were here. Dan was here. No, you weren't. It was your wedding. <laughs> Never mind. Oh, but congratulations, by the way. Dan and Lizzie are back. Um, who was here? I'm perfectly comfortable waiting until someone volunteers information. So what happened in Exodus 1? Wow, you remember their names. Wow, you're working. Good job, Jared. Gold, gold, oh, you weren't even here. Jeez. Oh, my gosh. He's shaming all of you who were here. <laughs> yes. Yes. Pharaoh, in his fear of the Hebrews who are multiplying greatly, commands the midwives to basically kill all the newborn boys. And so, and then the midwives defy him. We talked a lot about that last week, so I'm not going to go into it. But what I want to point out is that this is coming right on the heels of that. So the, the preservation of this boy is coming on the heels of this command from Pharaoh, and this boy is going to enter Pharaoh's household, the very source of the command to kill him. He's going to enter the household. And also fascinating, we talked a lot last week about the role of the women and the midwives, particularly. It's really interesting to note the role that women play even in this scene. So the saving of, and you can read the whole thing to get all the details, but Moses' mother, Moses' sister, and then the women in Pharaoh's household all play active roles in actually preserving Moses. So in defiance of the command to kill all the boys, the women keep defying Pharaoh, wittingly or unwittingly, to save the person who's going to, God is going to use to save everyone. I think that's fascinating. Um, Moses' parents are not named here. But it says that they come from the tribe of Levi, which means that they're coming out of this priestly lineage. And so Moses is going, this is foreshadowing that Moses is going to be a priest figure and stand between God and the people. Um, a couple other details here. There are several words for the basket, the basket and the pitch. Does anyone, does this bring up any, any, any story to mind for anybody? The pitch in particular? Yeah, Noah. These are the same Hebrew words that are the, the, the boat, the basket, and the pitch are kind of the same words that are used, used for the Noah's Ark story. So this is fascinating, right? It's pointing back to God saving through water. Um, 
the basket is placed among the reeds. That's an intentional word choice. The sea, the Red Sea, as we call it, is actually also the Sea of Reeds, which is foreshadowing what Moses is going to do later. See, for biblical biblical writers, there's this popularistic idea that the biblical writers were primitive and didn't know what they were doing. But man, there's just so many allusions and thematic connections that I think are, are really it's just amazing literature. Um, the basket is placed among the reeds, which foreshadows even at his birth. This is foreshadowing God acting and moving and controlling this this situation. And it points forward to the, the uh, salvation God is ultimately going to work out through the Sea of Reeds later. And then finally, I just want to say, um, I think it's a gracious gift. So the way that the story plays out is Moses is discovered on the, in the Nile by women in Pharaoh's household. Uh, essentially, Pharaoh's household takes him in, but through a series of circumstances, because of Moses' sister watching from the bank, through a series of circumstances, Moses is nursed by his own mother for some time um, before he's given into Pharaoh's household fully. It's Man, it's just fascinating that we're talking about this on Mother's Day, and I'm going to give a prayer for Mother's Day later. Um, but it's a gracious we – can, we can see this. And the way I was taught this story as a child is that, like, look at the gracious gift that Moses' mother was able to nurse him for some time. And that is a gracious gift. Um, we're not sure how long it was. It's a reasonable guess to say probably two or three years. Um but I also don't want us to miss the very painful reality uh, into which Moses was born, right? This whole situation that he's born into, the killing of the children we talked about, and the painful reality that he's still got separated from his own people and his own family. Like, yes, it's a gracious, it is a gracious thing that his mother got to nurse him. But he's still got, this whole situation is still dark, right? He has been literally like, I mean, his mom was just hoping, this was her desperate, desperate act to save the child, to put in a basket in the water. And he is still taken from their household into, the, in, a, in a way, the heart of the evil Pharaoh's house, right? Um, he's kind of separated from his people and adopted into the midst of this kingdom that is actually oppressing his people and is actually the reason he had to be placed in this basket in the first place. And this is all pointing to this theme of what God is going to ultimately do in this chapter is draw Moses out back out of this whole situation. God is going to draw him out. This is the situation of what I was alluding to a minute ago about Moses being reshaped, kind of reformed. I'm going to talk about that, that more in a minute. But I do want to note his name. This is an important piece. Um, it's such an important thematic idea, because his name, Moshe, is the kind of Hebraic, did I say that right, Danny? Moshe? <laughs> Good. Um, that's the Hebrew way to say Moses. Um, and it's it comes out of that verb to draw out. His name is kind of a riff on the Hebrew verb draw out. It refers to this idea, this literal idea in the picture there, that he was actually drawn out of the water. But I think it points to so much more because Moses, in the later in the chapter, is going to be drawn out of Egypt himself, and then he is going to lead a major drawing out of the whole people uh, later on in the story. And so his his name points to. Again, biblical names point to important themes and important ideas. His name points to who he is and what he does and what God does through him. And this all sets the stage for what's about to happen next in the next section of the chapter. Moses, Moshe, Moses is a Hebrew from this priestly line of Levi, as I mentioned, who has been graciously saved. He's been preserved, and he's been brought up in the very midst of Egypt. In Egypt, it's important to understand Egypt was almost symbolic for kind of the dark side. <laughs> evil, e evil, like the, the, the kingdom of death. Um, Egypt is known to be 
it stands in for that. And, uh, same, same with Babylon, but in a different way in the biblical literature. But Egypt in this story is very, Genesis literally ends with Joseph in a coffin in Egypt, pointing to kind of the, the reality of death in Egypt. Um, so, but Moses is brought up in the very midst of this kingdom. And as we'll see, we don't get a lot of details about his early life, but he's apparently very aware of his own ethnicity and his own lineage, where he comes from. Um, we get no details, like I said, about, about what happens as he grows up, which is interestingly similar to Jesus' biography. We don't get any really many details about Jesus' growing up years. Um, but there are some interesting things here still to notice. He knows that he is a Hebrew in the midst of Egypt. And it's very interesting to me. We don't see why. We don't get any explanation as to how he knew that. Um, was he taught that at a young age? Did he just always kind of on some level know? Or maybe he looked very obviously different from the Egyptians. Um, we don't know. Again, depictions, movies, and, and plays and stuff kind of imaginatively play with that. It is fascinating to kind of reflect on how Moses grew aware of his ethnic difference um, from the people that he lived with. But it's what is clear about it, however he came to know it, it's clear that it created a really significant tension for him. And this is what sets the stage for another pretty famous scene in his life in which he sees uh, one of his people being oppressed by an Egyptian. And he, in an act of impassioned recklessness, he actually kills the Egyptian uh, and hides the body. Um, yeah, it's very, it's very dark. It's very, very violent. Um, what's under the surface here is this sharp tension about. Uh, I couldn't help but think of um, if you're familiar with W. E. B. Du Bois, he had a term, um, I believe, that he coined called double consciousness, um, and he was talking about the uh, black experience in America. But I think it applies to so many situations because the idea of double consciousness is that you are conscious of occupying two, at least two kind of worlds, two identities in the same body. And that double consciousness creates a sharp struggle as to where you really, really belong. So I've known a lot of people in my life, you, you probably have too, either children of people who have immigrated into the states, uh, sometimes people who are biracial feel this struggle, some people who have been adopted into a family that maybe is from an obviously a different um, uh, ethnicity or nationality than them. You can come up with a lot of examples of what a double consciousness might actually look like. But people who feel this tension of kind of occupying two peoples. Um, and I just couldn't help but think about that as I'm looking at the story of Moses, who is a Hebrew in the midst of Egypt, and he sees this outrage. And he acts, um, wrongfully acts in a violent way, but he still acts out of a passion and a recklessness. And I just wonder if it brings any comfort for, because I, I, know, I know people who have really struggled with similar struggles of like, where do I belong? Who am I? I have this identity tension in me. Um, and I just wonder if it brings any comfort to know that God used someone like Moses who felt that tension keenly. And also, like, this is not a good thing that he does. Um, he acted sinfully out of it. And yet God used him, which I think is powerful. And I wonder also, on, an, on another level, if actually Moses' double consciousness actually in some ways made him a perfect candidate to be the one that God would use to draw the people out of Egypt, to draw Israel out. Um, but regardless of all that, on top of all that, I think what one thing that we see here is that Moses does have a character flaw. <laughs> um, he seems to be 
like I said, impulsive. He sees a member of his ethnic group, Israel, being unjustly treated by a member of his adopted group, Egypt. And he acts in a really heated passion. Um, I think that his zeal for justice is not the problem here. Like, he clearly is a zealous person for justice. Like, he sees this and it, and it pricks something in him, a rage or something. Um, and that's, I think, the, the passion for justice is the positive sense of this. But I think the impulse of recklessness is the, is the character flaw. In it. And interestingly, we'll see this, a glimpse of this later on in his life. If you know the story of Moses' life, he acts in a moment of recklessness. Um, he strikes a rock in defiance of God's command, and that is pointed at as the thing that keeps him from actually seeing the promised land um, later on in the story. So this kind of this kind of recklessness doesn't seem to go away from him. It foreshadows what's going to happen a little bit later on in his life. Um, but what I want to point out here is I just want to point. I'm just trying to point out that Moses is a human. <laughs> He's a person. He had this double consciousness tension in him with these kind of this, this background that he's in. He's immersed in this, this oppressing empire. He can't help but think of passion for justice, and he sees this tension of the way his own people are being treated. He doesn't, doesn't know where to go with it. He's very flawed, but he's very um, passionate for justice, which is, a, which is a character trait of God's. And God uses him. God uses this kind of messy situation. This, this messy person in this messy situation, God uses all of it to accomplish his ultimate rescue of his people. And we'll see Moses' passion for justice again in the very next scene when he protects these bullied uh, shepherdesses from whom he's going to actually, um, through whom he's going to actually meet his wife. But here we see this whole, this is, I'm going to move into the, the next section now. This whole situation is kind of um, an interesting bind that, he, that he's been placed in. He murders this Egyptian, and then this murder is apparently known and seen because he goes out, he sees two Hebrews mistreating each other, and he goes out to intervene in that situation too, and they don't respect him, and they don't want him to intervene because they know of what just happened right, to this Egyptian. So again, this double consciousness bind he's in, it's pla- in his impulsiveness and his recklessness has placed him in this situation where he acted, and now at, when he tries to intervene, for justice, he's actually prevented by his own people whom he is trying to protect. His own people don't want him to intervene in this situation. It's fascinating. There's so much that can be pulled out of this. He's murdered an Egyptian, so he's no longer safe with Egypt, but the Hebrews don't see him as one of their own either, because presumably because he's been so immersed in Pharaoh's household. And this tension, all these factors come together and produce a tension in him that sets the stage for his flight out of Egypt. And this begins the drawing out process that God is working out in his life. But Moses fled from Pharaoh after all this happened. He fled from Pharaoh and he went to live in the land of Midian and sat down by a well. And again, I really encourage you to read this whole story because essentially what happens is he sees these fema- these shepherdesses, these female shepherds being bullied and he intervenes. He intervenes again, right? He, ca- he cares about people being treated right. He intervenes, protects them from these bullies and then he gets taken into this tribe in Midian. Um, and this tribe, we don't know a ton about them either, but we do know they're not Jewish. That's an interesting, uh, an interesting fact in the story. And he ends up marrying Zipporah, his wife. He ends up marrying a Midianite as he flees from Egypt. So he's drawn out. Keep, keep this theme of being drawn out in your mind. He's drawn out of the water. 
he's drawn out of Egypt into Midian, and he ends up marrying a Midianite. And one thing that I want to point out about this is that the fact that he marries a Midianite points to the reality that God's rescue plan was never merely or only about bloodline and ethnicity. So what I mean by that is that God is rescuing the Jews out of Egypt, and he's rescuing a specific ethnic group, but it's never was supposed to be limited to just them. The rescue plan was never supposed to be limited to just Israel. And this is something that I, I every time this, this, this comes up a lot, these little hints, and even when they, when they leave Egypt, there's a lot of non-Jews that go with them in the flight out of Egypt, ultimately. Um, there's so many hints in the Old Testament that the entire rescue plan of God was never just about a bloodline and ethnicity, and a lot of the New Testament wrestles with that reality. A lot of the New Testament wrestles with the reality of what do we do um, about God's rescue plan, God's salvation being available to people who are not Israelites. Um, But Moses marries a non-Israelite and brings her into, God brings her into the rescue plan right from the very beginning of the story. Um, And so, as this chapter culminates, as this whole story culminates, Moses is at the well. He meets these women. He saves them. He marries Zipporah. He spends some amount of time in Midian. We don't know how long, but it seemed to be quite a while. And so as this all unfolds, we see Moses going through a process of being extracted and drawn out and drawn through the world of Egypt. He's extracted from some amount of wealth, privileges, comforts, luxuries of being part of Pharaoh's household. We don't know the details of what that looked like, but he certainly had, he was not being beaten and oppressed like the Israelites were, so he was certainly protected in some way. He's extracted out of all of that, those, those comforts, that luxury. He's extracted out of all that, and he's reshaped, reformed into a wandering shepherd actually. He becomes a shepherd. And he's bound to a non-Jewish tribe in marriage. And this wandering, shepherding life in the wilderness, frankly, he looks a lot more like a patriarch now. The patriarchs being uh, the Abrahamic patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's he's going through a metamorphosis from immersed in, in the heart of Egypt to a wandering, shepherding, patriarchal type figure like in Genesis. And I really see this time, this is this kind of really came out of the story for me as I was studying it this week for the first time. It, it came out for the first time in a new way. I see his time in Midian as a time of shaping and reforming. I think God is reshaping Moses. I think it's his time in the wilderness that happens so often in the biblical literature. I really believe that God is preparing and forming him for this task ahead. He's about to go through a really dramatic confrontation with the household that he just came from. And he's got to do it from a distinctly different place and be a distinctly different person. And I think an important aspect of all this is the drawing out. I keep seeing that phrase. He experiences drawing out of Egypt. He's drawn out of basically everything that's familiar to him and comfortable to him. And he's going to be the one who draws the people out of their oppression in their Egypt, draws them out of um, what they are used to. But even more so, I think this pattern, this pattern of drawing out, points forward to the salvation that God is going to accomplish through Christ for all to, and offer to all people, including us. God's rescue, and this really builds to what I really, really want to emphasize this morning and end with, 
God's salvation involves our own drawing out and being reformed into a people that point distinctly to God, just like Moses and just like the Israelites. Drawing out, reforming, being reshaped and reconstituted into a new people that point distinctly to God. So let me, let me unpack this as we close. Because I think when we look at this story, we can apply this whole pattern, this pattern of being drawn out and being saved and re- reformed. We can apply that pattern to our own understanding of how God saves us today. Because we are offered a gift of salvation that also draws us out and reshapes us, like I said. But what I really believe is that part of what God communicates through the story of the Exodus and through this chapter in particular is that, and what he does through Moses' life, is that um, God is communicating to us that God's people, the people marked by God, saved by God, drawn out by God, reshaped by God, God's people are to be distinct and to be separate. Not not physically separate, as like in a monastery or something, although faithful Christians have done that too but separate in act, in appearance, in ethics. God's people are to be, to be distinct and separate from the others around them. Because, not just, be, not just for the sake of being separate, but because God's people are meant to point to a God who is also distinct and separate. It's one way of understanding the term holy, when God says be holy because I'm holy, is to be set apart, to be separate. That's one dimension of the word holy important one. God's people are to be distinct and separate because they are meant to point to a God who is also distinct and separate. This is how Israel was meant to carry out its own mission as it was created into a people. Israel was meant to faithfully point to God so that the rest of the world might know the character of God adequately. So the Israelites were supposed to be a light to the nations, right? They were supposed to point to God so that God would be known adequately by those nations, by the rest of the world. And of course, because of sin, we know that the Israelites failed at this. They did not faithfully point. They were not faithfully a light to the nations to point to God. And actually, if you reread the rest of Exodus, you'll see that they failed pretty fast. <laughs> we get to chapter 32, and they immediately fail. Um, but the point of God's rescue plan was to form a people that would point to him for the rest of the world, for the sake of the rest of the world to know him. It's God's intention and purpose that a distinct and set-apart people would live and would worship in such a way that they point faithfully to a distinct and a set-apart God who is love. A God of love. And so this brings me on, and this is, this is the pattern. I'm trying to draw out this pattern of Moses being drawn out, set-apart, reshaped, to draw out a people who are set-apart and reshaped, who would live and worship and point to God. And this brings up what the necessary question pressing question that I have been feeling this week that I want to ask you. To what do you need to be drawn out from to better point more faithfully to God? What do you need to be drawn out from? Or what do we need to be drawn out from? For Moses, he was drawn out of comfort, privileges, wealth. Might those be things? that hinder your ability to point to God in your own life? Certain luxuries? You know, it's easy to point to social media and things like this, but not truly to be drawn out from things that are shaping your imagination, um, news media, whatever. Certain ways of talking about politics are really, obviously really toxic right now. 
What things are shaping you and forming you in a way that hinder your ability to point to God in your life that you need to be drawn out from? Or maybe you relate to the raw oppression and bondage that the Israelites experience in this story, and then that's what you need to be drawn out from. Because there's a freedom there, too. It's not just about shedding things that you... It's not always just about shedding things that you want. Sometimes it's about God freeing you from things that are actually really, really oppressing you. But I urge you, I urge us communally to pray honestly into this question. What do we need to be drawn out from to better point more faithfully to God? Just as Moses and just as the Israelites experienced. Because I really do believe that God's exodus-shaped exodus salvation, the way that the salvation looks in the exodus, points to what God does and has done through Christ and is offered for us. And that involves drawing out. So what do we, what, what, what might we as a community be able to do together to foster this kind of drawing out? Like, what do you need? Talk to your triads, talk to your community groups, talk to your families about what you need to be drawn out from that's hindering your ability point faithfully to God, because I believe that we are called to be a set-apart, reformed, reshaped people that point to God faithfully in the midst of our world. And I thought about, I know I'm being vague about that, I, I, I thought about giving some, like, practical, three practical examples, but as I started to press into it, there's just so many. I mean, I mentioned social media, I mentioned wealth, there's just so, so many. But I really, I want us to press into this together as a community, to discern together what God would have for us. Um, so we're going to transition to communion now. Um, I want to say a few things. I'm going to leave. I actually want to leave this image up as we take communion. This is a um, art that's inspired by the end of this chapter. I'm going to read this, and as they pass around the elements, um, go ahead and just hold on to them for a minute, and I'll, I'll guide us through this together. But I want to read these verses, or this verse in particular. This is the end of chapter two. In the midst of all of this. Moses being drawn out, Moses marrying a Midianite, Moses waiting to hear from God again. It says, God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I'm going to read, I'm going to reread that with a few more verses in the NIV. Really listen to this. During that long period, this whole period of Moses' flight from Egypt. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help went up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. God hears... And God remembers. So as, as I mentioned, as you pray into this question, what do we need to be drawn out from to better point more faithfully to God? God hears. God remembers God's faithfulness. God remembers God's covenant. God doesn't do this rescuing or drawing out for no reason. God has an end in mind. And as I mentioned a minute ago, Israel was unfaithful to their mission because of their sin. But the good news is that God was not unfaithful. God has never been unfaithful. And what we believe as we look back on the Exodus story, 
in light of the Christ event in the cross, resurrection, and the ascension, we can look back on it and and hold fast to God's faithfulness because we know what it looks like. We know what it looks like, what we're about to celebrate and commemorate. It looks like God is so faithful that even when sin gets in the way of Israel being a light to the nations, God is so faithful, God will unite himself to his people in the form of the incarnation, and God will walk towards a cross. Because his faithfulness to that covenant, God will not let go of the covenant. God will not let go of God's promise to reshape and remake and draw out and rescue a new people for the sake of the world. And we know that that looks like Christ on the cross. And that faithfulness is what we honor and remember and point to every week when we take this bread and this cup. And so I invite you to open this up. And remember Jesus' words to his own followers that this is his body broken for you, and this is his blood spilled for the new covenant. invite you to take and eat and drink. And I'm going to reread those words from the last the last verses of Exodus 2 as we do this together. Take and eat. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out and their cry for help went up to God. God heard their groaning and remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, 